Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. So here's some backstage talk to start this podcast out. Ever wonder how we pick books for NBN podcasts? Fortunately, it's at the discretion of we, the hosts. Typically, I peruse university press catalogs to see what might be interesting and try to make a plan for each upcoming year. This podcast, however, began with a tweet, which is surprising given how relevant the book is to my own interests. No, this is not about to become a reply-all episode, in case you were wondering. So I saw an article from NJ.com back in February about the whole gamut of groundhogs predicting the end of winter on Groundhog Day. Everyone knows Punxsutawney Phil, but what about Essex Ed, Holtzville Hal, Milltown Mel, and Malvern Mel? How are we mere mortals to handle conflicting weather advice from these rodents? I thought it was funny, so I tweeted. Blah blah, standards are socially constructed, blah blah, prediction is predicated upon ritual, so who do you believe, Milltown Mel or Malvern Mel? Help me, Ted Porter. Ted Porter, for those of you who don't know, wrote a book called Trust in Numbers, about how measurement is often a way weak social actors gain authority. Historian of science Dan Bauck corrected me, saying that I should really be looking to historian Jamie Petruska, who has written a fantastic book about prediction in American culture. Having read a paper on weather profits by Petruska a few months before, I knew I had to talk to her. Looking Forward, Prediction and Uncertainty in Modern America was published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. In the wake of wonkish liberals shaking their latte-clutching fists at Nate Silver for not predicting the outcome of the 2016 election correctly, Pietruska's book explores the early relationship between prediction and the American economy, government, and popular culture, during a time that historians claim modern life was transformed by numbers. But rather than beginning in the Stock Exchange or the Standards Bureau, the book grew out of Pietruska's interest in rural technology. The project really began in the interests I had before graduate school. And so I I was interested in understanding more about the cultural and aesthetic relationship between technology and nature in the 19th century United States. So very influenced by the works of Leo Marx, David Nye, sort of thinking in that vein. And I began looking at rural telegraph networks once I got to graduate school, as a way to understand a wired landscape. And so that led me to a case study of government weather forecasting in the countryside in the Gilded Age. And initially, I had imagined that the dissertation would be exclusively on weather forecasting. But then 
came to realize that weather forecasts were one among many different kinds of forecasts circulating alongside each other in daily economic life. And so I broadened the research and broadened the story to include crop forecasting, which has a very similar historical trajectory to weather forecasting in the U.S. And so I began to think about how weather and crop forecasts fit into a broader culture of prediction that consisted of both the material predictive knowledge infrastructures, but also ideas about predictability, uncertainty, and the future itself. So the project initially began with a much more sort of narrow artifactual focus on the creation of rural telegraph networks and contests over access to short-term weather forecasting in a history of technology framework, and then broadened its scope to include crop forecasts, market forecasts, fortune telling into a framework that draws on history of science and technology, cultural history, and also um, new histories of capitalism and risk. While other historians have talked about the paradox of bourgeois life, the rise of government bureaucracy and the corporation, or even the erosion of determinism as broad phenomena in the late 19th century, culture of prediction is the term Pietruska coins to talk about the wide array of practices and persons she discusses. I asked her what work this does for her account. Culture of prediction is really my way to reconcile these two you know, dominant interpretations of the late 19th century U.S. One, the, the search for order, the organizational synthesis, the sort of rise of bureaucratic rationality, order, stability, and the other, you know, the as, as Ian Hacking puts it, the, the erosion of determinism, the clearing of a space for chance, and, and the shift to an understanding and an embrace of probabilism, chance, and uncertainty. And Culture of prediction really, in my mind, describes the the ubiquity of forecasts. So one of the the basic premises of the book is that the forecast of everyday life became increasingly commonplace. Um, They were also systematized and routinized. And so surely the late 19th century is not the first time that Americans or um, anyone the world over looked forward and, and made attempts to predict the future. But I argue that a new kind of systemization and routinization emerged. Uh, part of that, of course, has to do with the new infrastructures and bureaucracies, the role of the state um, in producing forecasts. Um, and the other aspect of the, the culture of prediction as I write about it, is that it was very much a contested culture. And so there was nothing inevitable um, about the rise of prediction. This is not a a kind of linear story of scientific progress in which predictions automatically became more accurate and more valuable over time. And, And the book tries to demonstrate that it really is a messy and volatile and very contested culture of prediction in which it's not quite clear who has the authority to make claims about the future. And it's not quite clear what in fact forecasts mean and what their value is. So the culture of prediction, as I write about it, tries to encompass this newly commonplace sort of habit of looking forward as well as the the contests and controversies over it. 
Now, this is also a period of time when modern professional organizations as we know them came into being. I asked Petruska about the relationship between amateurs and professionals in her book. So one of the central claims in the book is that there isn't actually a clear dividing line between who counts as a professional forecaster and who counts as what we might think of as an amateur, um, you know, practicing a kind of vernacular foreknowledge. And so there's no clear dividing line between what counts as a scientific forecast and, and what is an unscientific forecast. And I think the clearest illustration of this is that if you look at late 19th century American newspapers, you will find articles featuring, featuring weather forecasts, crop forecasts, market forecasts, along with advertisements for fortune tellers and spirit mediums. And so the way that historians have retrospectively categorized um, different modes of knowledge production in this period, it, those categories just didn't exist at the time. And so I take seriously anyone as a, a forecaster in this period um, who made systematic and sustained uh, predictions about the future. And, and if a if one of my actors claimed predictive authority for themselves, then, you know, I've sort of found a place for them in this broader narrative of prediction. And so fortune tellers, weather prophets, government meteorologists, statisticians, journalists, utopians, I don't really differentiate, um, you know, among those different types of, of ways of predicting the future. And so, Fortune tellers professionalized, you know, just as weather forecasters and, and agricultural statisticians were professionalizing. Um, and so I try to see more really similarities among them than, than differences. But one of, as the project has, you know, was, was developing over the years, one is sort of question or, or criticism I sometimes got was about the place of fortune tellers in a narrative about professionalization. Um, and so um, I just became really more and more committed um, to making sure that that they had a place in this story as well, because the the rhetoric and the the debates about predictability and, uns and uncertainty when judges and jurists were you know thinking about the legality of fortune telling, they borrowed metaphors and concepts from the world of meteorology and when meteorologists were critiquing each other's work and trying to, you know, sort of um, buttress their claims to authority, they would make reference to fortune telling. And so there, there's a lot more, um, you know, sort of cross-pollination of, of ideas about the future in the world of meteorology and fortune telling uh, than perhaps we've recognized as historians. While the book itself talks about the work of prediction experts in the rural U.S., the shadow of the modern metropolis looms large, a tension that we discussed. You know, the emergence of professional forecasting in the United States was in the countryside, and oftentimes histories of business, technology, professionalization in this period really locate the rise of order system and rationality in the city. And I think it's important to realize that professional forecasting really emerged from this concern with 
how to make the countryside more predictable, whether in terms of the harvest or the or the weather itself. Part of what I try to do in the chapters on crop forecasting and weather forecasting is to show, you know, through an examination of networks and infrastructures, the ongoing relation between the urban and the rural, um, the kind of polarized urban versus rural theme is something that comes through in the rhetoric, uh, the discourse around forecasting in this period. And so to take one example, government weather forecasters would commonly depict uh, rural producers as superstitious um, and in need of, you know, sort of the enlightenment of modern scientific meteorology. Uh, but in fact, on the ground, uh, these predictive knowledge infrastructures linked the urban and the rural um, in ways that that kind of rhetoric or that framing, you know, just doesn't, um, doesn't really acknowledge. Historians are often drawn to documents that rankle or upset our existing understanding. So I asked Petruska about what surprised her the most when she was researching the book. I think one of the most surprising discoveries I made in researching the book has to do with with long-range weather prediction, um, and in particular as it relates to Willis Moore, uh, the head of the U.S. Weather Bureau from 1895 to 1913. And, and he, more so than any other weather bureaucrat of the time, really led a crusade against the very popular long-range weather forecasters who produced almanacs, who made predictions you know, about the what the weather would be next month, next season, next year. And so he really led the um, personnel of the Weather Bureau in what people commonly refer to as a war on the weather prophets, that it was his mission to drum the weather prophets out of business because, as he argued, they were dangerous quacks that discredited the authority of short-term government weather science. And he devoted really an extraordinary amount of time and energy to leading this public relations campaign to try to teach people to trust in government weather science and to let go of the almanacs and, you know, the, the signs in nature, the groundhog, um, other forms of weather proverbs or, or what we sometimes call weather folklore, and, and to place their trust um, solely in the new government weather service. And the irony is that at the end of his career, um, he was removed from the Weather Bureau after a, a sort of long and complicated um, story about his own political maneuvering. Um, and so Wilson uh, fires him. And then Willis Moore uh, would be the least likely person to go into the long range weather forecasting business, but he actually did. Um, and so he teamed up with another um, you know, well-known, um, sort of notorious long-range forecaster, and they went into business together um, for at least a couple of years. Um, and the people who were still in the Weather Bureau, you know, couldn't quite believe uh, that Willis Moore, of all people, um, had become the very thing that he had hated for so long. Sounds sort of like the opposite of what sociologists call regulatory capture, or when government experts become valuable to businesses. Anyway, one interesting feature of the account is how agricultural statisticians, people who predicted yields to drive economic activity in cities, sought out government resources to counter the mercurial forecasts of cotton profits. 
you know, I think the real difference between the the cotton chapter in the book and the and the weather chapters is that you know there were voluminous archival records uh, of the U.S. Weather Bureau and the records I was looking for um, in the U.S. Department of Agriculture records pertaining to you know this particular topic. Um, I was told they were unfortunately destroyed, um, and so I was I was forced to rely on. Um, newspaper accounts and published government documents um, to try to reconstruct the story of cotton forecasting in this period. And so similar to weather forecasting, um, a new government agency, um, the Division of Statistics in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, assembled a, a decentralized reporting network that would gather um volunteer observations on crop condition and yield, and then try to aggregate them um, to produce um, really year-end statements of yield to try to essentially stabilize speculative agricultural commodity markets because speculators with, you know, the power of rumor and the absence of any kind of um, centralized uh, data gathering and any kind of aggregate statistics uh, could easily manipulate markets. Um, and so the, the story of the chapter is really about the tension between this new government agricultural statistics apparatus and a British cotton prophet, as he was called, named Henry Neal, um, who wreaked havoc on American cotton markets by issuing ever more inflated forecasts of the year's yield. And so he was the most, he wasn't the only, but he was the most notorious bear market forecaster. And the media, as you describe, um, newspapers were crucial to this kind of battle between the federal government, um, Henry Neal, and eventually protective associations of, of Southern cotton growers themselves. Um, in in one respect, um, through the, the use of the media to circulate Henry Neal's cotton estimates. And so um, his estimates circulated on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, they were picked up, you know, in, in newspapers across um, the country. And um, this, if, if you didn't subscribe to his letters, um, this would be a, a primary way for you to know um, what he had predicted, you know, 11 million bales, 12 million bales, whatever um, his prediction would be. Um, the other side of that story is that um, new newspapers themselves, um, and in particular the Atlanta Constitution, um, took it upon themselves to really um, try to mount a critique and, and really disrupt what really seemed like a stranglehold that this one cotton profit had over cotton prices. And so um, Henry Neal's predictions and the um, the writings in the Atlanta Constitution, um, the, the rhetoric is fierce, the battle is pitched, um, and they, uh, the Atlanta Constitution, devoted a, a great deal of, of time and energy to trying to uh, discredit Henry Neal. Um, and the sort of ironic part of, of his downfall is that um, it was connected to uh, the U.S. Weather Bureau and that the um, Atlanta Constitution reported on how the U.S. Weather Bureau discovered that Henry Neal had um, falsely um, or, or he had manipulated rainfall data to try to buttress his argument that a particular year's drought was not going to have 
um, you know, a negative impact on the year's yield. Um, and so his, uh, his ultimate downfall um, very much played out in the press. And so in a way, he rose to fame and fortune as the cotton prophet by virtue of the press, um, and it also really hastened his downfall. The U.S. Weather Service tried to provide resources for farmers, including distributing weather maps to enroll them in an effort to standardize weather data, and in turn, to make these data significant for local areas. You know, this idea that every man could be his own weather prophet really comes from the the fact that the first National Weather Service didn't really extend into the countryside. And so the the story of the chapter is how really in, in a rather sort of halting way, um, the federal government tried to extend its weather service into um, into the countryside. And so the federal government tried to devise really just different kinds of strategies to respond to the increasing demand from farmers, from local agricultural societies, from different farmers associations um, in their demand for weather forecasts uh, that were really off of the uh, essentially off the grid, right? Not if you lived in an area um, not directly served by a telegraph line, how would you get the daily weather forecast? And so, I mean, the archives are full of these petitions and these requests for essentially, you know, expand, extending the service, making a, a network uh, more dense. And so one of the ways that the federal government tried to respond to this demand was with you know, different forms of signaling technologies. So using, at that time, it was the U.S. Signal, the U.S. Army Signal Service that was administering the National Weather Service. And so using signal service flags that were flown high atop um, Western Union offices or post offices, so that even if you lived miles away from a post office, you could perhaps see uh, the, the color and shape of the flag combinations other times, um, you know, d- different sort of, of, of plans were proposed, perhaps putting uh, signals on railroad cars. Um, and so that was about extending uh, the signal itself. The, the part you asked about, every man his own weather prophet, tried through maps, through um, other types of self-reporting instruments like the farmer's weather case, you know, basically rudimentary self-recording uh, weather instruments that could um, record um, rainfall, for example, temperature, barometric pressure, and essentially allow the farmers to take the generalized forecast that was produced by the federal government and to essentially refine it and make it more locally specific. And, you know, I, I think the extent to which this worked, you know, for, for some farmers, for some organizations, it worked well, um, depending upon where they lived and and what sort of, um, what the climate was like, what the weather patterns were like for other farmers in other parts of the, the country, it may not have worked, um, so well. Um, but the, the federal government also tried to, come up with more locally useful forms of weather information. So aside from 
So the first weather forecasts were called the synopsis and probabilities. And so synopsis was just the summary of the previous 24 hours worth of weather probabilities were what the weather was probably going to be in the next 24 hours, although they were not actually probabilistic in our sense of, you know, 40% chance of rain. It was what the weather was probably going to be. And that was augmented, you know, in the 1880s by other types of forecasts, um, river reports, flood reports, special forecasts for cotton growing regions, for the wheat belt. And so you really do see this attempt, not just to equip farmers with maps or self-recording instruments, but also to try to produce forecasts that were essentially customized to um, you know, local agricultural production. In a nice turn of phrase, Petruska talks about how certain economists were effectively, quote, counter-revolutionaries in the probabilistic revolution, unquote, who envisioned worlds of economic certainty. One of these economists was Edward Bellamy, whose book Looking Backward inspired Petruska's title. I asked about how Bellamy himself figures in this account. Edward Bellamy obviously, you know, gave me the title um, for the book. And, and initially there was a lot, there was even more material on Bellamy in the manuscript than there was now. And so I, I tried mightily um, to rein it in, but it was always a special fascination uh, for me. And the reason that, <clears throat> the reason that I include his utopian novel in this culture of prediction is that it really was the most widely circulated literary forecast of the period and led directly to a short-lived political movement called nationalism. Bellamy chose the word nationalism rather than socialism, but this is essentially, he, he's predicting um, essentially a, a democratic um, Christian socialist utopia and Part of what I find so interesting about the way that he writes about the economy in the year 2000 is that chance has been essentially eliminated. And so uh, there's no more economic volatility, what he calls the specter of uncertainty in the Gilded Age economy. Um, And so his vision of a standardized collective still with department stores and, you know, other aspects of consumer culture that were, I think, very recognizable and and perhaps non-threatening to late 19th century readers. Uh, But that this is a vision of the economic future that has a lot of the techno-scientific wonders, the material progress of the Gilded Age that, that, that few enjoyed and many did not, uh, but it has those um, economic virtues with none of the volatility, the boom and bust, um, the unemployment, um, labor strikes, um, and so forth. So essentially he has you know, recreated um, the American economy around this vision of economic certainty. So to the extent that Bellamy gets attention um, from scholars, you know, he's often um, discussed as, um, you know, someone who foresaw, for example, credit cards. Um, He was, I believe, the first to use that term. Um, He has, he imagines a, a system of uh, pneumatic tubes that deliver goods from department stores to people's homes. And so it seems a sort of obvious 
um, forerunner to Amazon or, or um, he has a, a vision of um, it, what we would later, you know, understand as uh, television. And, and so he sort of depicted as this kind of, of techno prophet. Uh, but what I think is more interesting um, is his vision of a, an economy without the kind of volatility that, you know, other perhaps more recognizable business forecasters like Samuel Benner um, were also trying to combat, uh, but with, of course, very different methods. There's an emerging literature that connects the strong scholarship on the history of capitalism to the field of history of science. Notably, the History of Science Society had a thematic yearbook that dealt with this convergence in 2018. I asked Petruska how she sees her book in dialogue with this current trend. How does considering the intersection of science and capitalism allow us to rethink the meaning of knowledge production? You know, the, the book was really shaped by, on, on the one hand, a lot of the, you know, some of the older literature in history of science and intellectual history about probability, the probabilistic re- revolution, the rise of, of probabilism and intellectual frameworks for chance, uh, but also the newer, you know, cultural histories of capitalism that deal directly with risk. And so John Levy's book, Freaks of Fortune, Walter Friedman's uh, wonderful book on economic forecasters, um, Scott Sandage's book, uh, Born Losers, A History of Failure in America. I mean, these were all really models for me in thinking about how you can't really separate the economic from the epistemic. And so the book tries to look at what I think of as a mutually constitutive relationship between forecasts as an economic tool, right? So a mechanism for risk management, but also forecasting as a form of epistemology. So a, 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 no, a process of knowledge making about the future. Um, and all of those works, also Dan Bauck's work, on um, insurance, Josh Lauer's work on credit reporting, works like that really, I think, attend um, quite brilliantly to the the ongoing interplay between the two, between the economic and the epistemic. Uh, what I try to do is to is to look at that interplay, but also to ground it in what I think of as the epistemologies of the everyday. And so I'm interested in in the book in looking at how ordinary people, you know, used forecasts to govern economic decision-making from, you know, when to market um, a cotton crop to, you know, when to um, ship a certain uh, type of good um, to whether or not they could take a trip, whether or not it would be safe to travel, would there be a heat wave, uh, something like that. Um, And also how, ordinary Americans understood the future as a realm that was potentially knowable. Um, And one of the things that I was most struck by in researching this book, particularly in the archives of the U.S. Weather Bureau, was just how many letters there were um, from ordinary people, you know, asking for forecasts. So so making a sort of concrete re- request, uh, whether for long range forecasts or whether for, you know, a forecast for their particular area. But then how often those letters really evolved into broader, you know, philosophical queries about the nature of foreknowledge itself. And so many ordinary people 
would write about, you know, does the U.S. Weather Bureau have the authority to know the weather? It does God know, you know, is God making this knowledge available to scientists? And so you, you see, you know, ordinary people who otherwise are, are lost to the historical record really grappling with the same kinds of epistemological questions that, you know, intellectual historians and historians of science um, have focused on, uh, but largely in the worlds of the intellectual elite. And so um, what I try to do is to sort of triangulate the epistemic, the economic, and also the everyday um, in thinking about knowledge making, both as scientific knowledge production, but also as, as risk management in a capitalist system. Looking forward to her future work, we concluded our conversation with a preview of Petruska's current project. So when I was doing the archival research for this book, I was so fascinated by the standardized forms that volunteer observers were using to record local weather observations as part of a national reporting network. And sometimes the forms were filled out properly and thoroughly, sometimes not. But sometimes the the observers adapted the forms, repurposed them uh, to suit their own agenda, writing other information, you know, writing um, a narrative instead of providing uh, numbers, you know, writing on the other side or, you know, it, it perpendicularly in the margins. And so I began thinking about sort of the, the, the adaptation of paperwork and about the individual lived in material experience of paperwork and bureaucracy in the late 19th century United States. You know, a, a sort of simpler way to put that question is, how do you teach people to learn to fill out forms um, and to do it properly? And so I'm doing, a, I'm doing research on how the routinized material quotidian practices of paperwork organize information and produce knowledge um, in what I'm thinking of as a culture of investigation in modernizing America. So one part of this project is looking at uh, the paperwork and bureaucracy of surveillance in the Pinkerton in Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. Um, I'm also looking at the practices and paperworks of spiritualist investigators. So carrying some of my interest in spirit mediums um, forward. Uh, and I also plan to look at other investigations in the context of commodity exchanges, uh, postal inspectors, and uh, federal investigations of immigration, public health, and crime. And so the big question drawing this all together is, how did paperwork and bureaucracy um, shape Americans' experiences of economic life and mediate their relationship to the state? And I think in some ways, this new project has a kind of opposite temporality in that instead of looking at the production of knowledge about the future, I'm looking at the epistemic and the material practices of investigation as the production of knowledge about past events. And so um, going from looking forward to to looking backward, um, although that title, of course, is already taken. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of New Books in Science, Technology, and Society a podcast on the New Books Network.